Hello, this is Blake Maggart, Parish Catechist at St. Peter Catholic Church. The following is a recording on the Kerygma, a topic that was covered September 22nd in The Way, Discovering and Living the Catholic Faith. We hope you enjoy, and God bless you. So what you are going to hear is from the 22nd chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. Let's ask the Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, help us to hear tonight. Help us especially to be open to that which you are prompting us. Set our hearts on fire with your love and your zeal. Help us especially to come to encounter the person of Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. A dispute also arose among the apostles, which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For which is the greater, one who sits at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at table, but I am among you as one who serves? You are those who have continued with me in my trials. As my Father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint for you, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging twelve tribes of Israel. This gospel passage has a particular import um, for me in my life, which I'm going to get to a little bit later, but I'd like to begin this evening on the kerygma with a story. Um, so this gospel actually always makes me think of my friend Steve Henry. Uh, I got to know Steve as uh, being parishioners and as well as getting to work alongside him when I lived in Emporia, Kansas. And uh, he did a phenomenal job in March of 2021 when he came and talked with my high schoolers. And um, he was a super committed parishioner. So we're a stewardship parish here, uh, which means we encourage and we want parishioners to give back of time talent and treasure um, and Steve like if you think of someone who's a steward he embodied it um, and I invited Steve that night to come and speak with my high schoolers because I knew many of the students were like huge sports fans um, they were all about athletics and uh, little did they know but I knew that Steve had played in the NFL And the whole story of how I figured out Steve played in the NFL um, is just so humble and so um, awe-inspiring for me because I grew up loving sports. And so to think like I would meet an NFL player or like get to know one and be close friends with one 
Like, if you would have told me that in middle school, I would have just been over the moon. Um, but Steve, that wasn't the first thing that you ever found out about him. So we were painting downstairs in the school cafeteria at Sacred Heart. And like, we were just having normal conversation, just running the mill in the day. And then like casually he dropped, oh yeah, when I played for the Colts. And in my head, I knew it immediately, like there's only one Colts team, it's the Indianapolis Colts. And so I literally did this. I was like, whoa, Steve, stop. You played in the NFL? He was like, yeah. Like I played for the Colts and I played for the Giants and I played for the Cardinals still when they were in St. Louis. Or no, maybe they're in LA at that point. Um, but before they, they, they were the Arizona Cardinals. So he uh, was a journeyman. And the whole reason why I invited him uh, that night is because we had a group of seniors that were preparing. There was the first group that I really walked through from them being freshmen all the way to seniors. They're getting ready to leave high school. Uh, we had a couple of our great like co-youth group leaders that had moved recently or were stepping away because of changes in life. So everyone was just experiencing this time of transition. And what makes Steve so amazing is because I listened to his story about playing in the NFL and being a journeyman, because he wasn't a star, but he was good enough to be on teams. And he re recounted to me, uh, he got a job at the nuclear power plant right next to Emporia. And this was towards the end of his career. And then a coach from, I think it was the Cardinals at that time, um, called him and said, Steve, we'd really like you to come into camp. And he told the coach, like, hey, don't be pulling my leg here. Don't bring me in and cut me because I got a good job here with my wife and my family and working at the nuclear power plant. In my head, I'm thinking, you're choosing life as Homer Simpson over an NFL player? Like, what is wrong with you? But by that time, Steve had come to know what was most important in his life. And so I invited him that night knowing that he would have the ability to speak to our high schoolers, really draw especially the young men in who thought they were all gonna be star players in the NFL, to show, hey, there's something more to life. Like, you're gonna to have to go through some difficulties. Steve was a cradle Catholic. He actually was raised in a town that was so Catholic that the public school kids went to daily mass on first Fridays. Which, like, when you go back to rural, um, rural places and rural Kansas and rural Nebraska, that's actually not that uncommon if it was a community was like super strong Catholic or super strong Lutheran, um, that that would happen. Uh, less division of church and state at that time. Um, but he, uh, he really came to know his faith through high school. He was formed well from being in the cradle, uh, but it was just kind of this continuing. And then it really developed and strengthened when he was in college at Emporia State University where he met his wife. Um, but that's where he learned to um, really take this active role in coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he shared that with all of our high schoolers. He talked about going through growing up, coming to know his faith and cherishing it. And then uh, eventually making that like the sole importance of his life, where he said, the NFL was great but it's not the end all be all. Like there's things way more important. And that's how he gave his talk. Uh, and then he did a little show and tell as he wrapped up the night. And so he's like pulling out pictures from his bag and he's pick, uh, passing around pictures of him with fellow um, Hall of Famers. And he's like, 
Look, I got their name and number in my address book. We could call them right now, but we're not going to. Uh, the second to last item that he pulls out is a football. He holds it up. He's like, how many of you young bucks, because they're all high schoolers and sorry high schoolers who are in here, your, uh, your um, memory is not that extensive. Like, you may know Joe Montana, but, like, it's not a given that you're going to know who Joe Montana is, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. So he pulls out this ball, and he's like, hey, I intercepted this football from Joe Montana. That's hard to do. Yeah. He's a line driver. In a real NFL game. So think Tom Brady, and he intercepted the ball. He passes that around. And then the last thing he pulls out from his bag is his crucifix. And he says, this is the last thing that I see when I leave the house. And it's the first thing I see when I enter. By far, this is the most important thing that I have and own. And then his mic drop moment was just the kids. Do you believe Jesus is real? Because I do. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And I'm getting emotional because I'm going to fast forward to the end of the story. Steve stayed around for like the next 30 minutes with our high schoolers and um, showed them drills. He was a defensive back and worked with them. And I was busy getting cleaned up, and I really regret that I never got a chance to tell him thank you. Because the next day, he was driving back to the church. As I said, he was a good steward. He was an engineer. Our Kansas wins blew open the handicapped door all the time at the church. And it wore out the motor and it broke it. And Steve had ordered in a go-kart motor to rig it up so that we could have the strongest handicapped door motor that's going to withstand the Kansas wind and it's not going to break. And as he was driving, a young man evading the police from breaking parole was going 100 miles down 6th Street in Emporia, Kansas, slammed into the back of Steve and killed him on impact. Steve got slammed up against a light pole. And um, that last 24 hours of Steve's life, I only had a small little part to play in it, inviting and getting to spend that last night with him. Um, but it's surreal. I can remember it to this day. So if you could point to any story and say, how could... A God who is all-loving, allow that to happen. Like, that's Steve's story to a T, is it not? Like, this, we're grappling with this problem of evil. How could a good God do that? And if we look objectively from a cynic's point of view, it kind of fits the bill. Steve was doing everything right. He went to Mass every week. Not only did he, him and his wife go to Mass every week, he would bring like mentally handicapped individuals to Mass. Uh, we spent many a times scooping snow on daily, like mornings before daily Mass so that the kids could make it to Mass and fellow parishioners could make it to Mass. He loved his wife, he loved his family, he loved his friends, and he was willing to help wherever needed. And I think it's the problem of evil as well as the approach to suffering that the Catholic Church holds up is one of the biggest reasons that I've 
continue to place my faith in what the church is and who she claims to be. Because what the church holds up for us is something to consider that the proposition of suffering without meaning equals misery, but suffering with meaning equals redemption. And it's not just this flippant escape for us to say, you know, we're just doing mental gymnastics to get us through the hard times in life. Because it's the same freedom that allowed Steve to be such a man of God that ultimately allowed the young man to choose wrongly. Because God doesn't want to will us into loving him. He wants that free choice. And that does bring about the problem of evil. We're all given the same freedom to choose great good or terrible evil. And that's at the heart of what we want to talk about tonight is the charisma, this proclamation of the story of what God is doing in and through the world. So Justin Martyr, we met him a few weeks ago. Um, we heard his conversion story, and he has much more to say. As I said, he's one of my favorites. But just after his conversation, so we're going to follow up a little bit. After he stated, I met the man who talked to me like no one ever had, and he prayed that my heart and my eyes would be open to the lights of faith. He talks about how a fire was kindled in his soul. And then he recounts his emotions as well as his new direction in life. He says, Moreover, I wish that all, making a resolution similar to my own, not keep themselves away from the words of the Savior, for they possess a terrible power in themselves and are sufficient to inspire those who turn aside from the path of rectitude with awe. With the sweetest rest is afforded those who make a diligent practice of them. If then you have any concern for yourself, and if you are eagerly looking for salvation, and if you believe in God, you may, since you are not indifferent to the matter, become acquainted with the Christ of God, and after being initiated, live a happy life. Justin says, you want a life that's sure and fulfilling, become acquainted with the Christ of God. And if we think back to his story from a few weeks ago, what was philosophy again? What did we say philosophy was? Wisdom. wisdom. Yeah, love of wisdom. Um, for us, though, us moderns, we think it's like grappling just with like abstract ideas, sitting in an ivory tower where there's not much practical import. But for Justin, in his time, and as well as for us, it's a love of wisdom. It's a way of finding a true way of life. Those who are philosophers, those who are philosophers now, are seeking after a true way of life. Justin had his life centered on Jesus Christ once he had experienced this kindled fire within his soul. And he saw that it was a continuation of a promise that God had begun at the beginning of the world that was revealed and told to individuals through the prophets. And that Jesus ultimately was the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. 
and he said, for the Christian, Jesus serves as the end or the goal of life, to become Christ-like. That's where we're heading towards. And he says, seek after him with diligent practice. After his conversion, he bound himself up with the life of Christ. So if we look at the Latin word that religion comes from, it actually comes from the word religare, which means to bind oneself. So this practice of religion is more than just grappling with ideas. It's putting ideas to a way of life. And that's emphasized as we go throughout all of sacred scripture. Every story has a beginning and an end. And St. Paul does so many fabulous jobs of summarizing the story or telling the story. But before we really talk about the kerygma proper, I just want to read to you from his letter to the Romans. Therefore, just as one, through one person sin entered the world, and through sin death, and thus death came to all, inasmuch as all sinned for up to the time of the law, sin was in the world, though sin did, is not accounted for when there is no law. But death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin after the pattern of the trespass of Adam, who is the type of the one who was to come. But the gift is not like the transgression. For if by that one person's transgression the many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gracious gift of the one person, Jesus Christ, overflow for the many? And the gift is not like the result of the one person sinning. For after one sin, there was the judgment that brought condemnation. But the gift, after many transgressions, brought acquittal. For if by the transgression of one person, death came to reign through that one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of justification come to reign in life? through the one person, Jesus Christ. In conclusion, just as though one transgression, condemnation came upon all, so through one righteousness, one righteous act acquittal, of acquittal, and life came to all. For just as through the disobedience of one person, there were made, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. Law entered in so that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace overflowed all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through justification for eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every story has a beginning and an end. And so the story to which I'm referring to is what we could call the kerygma. The term kerygma comes from the Greek word meaning proclamation. Also can mean like herald, one who proclaims. Thus, the kerygma is what is proclaimed. And so the world was changed when individuals like Paul, like those before him, started proclaiming Christ Jesus. 
And they went out with a pretty simple and basic message. But then, through extended teaching or instruction that would come later, people would be baptized. So the first message, Jesus Christ is Lord. There's sin abound. We can see the brokenness. But there's a guy who I knew, who others knew, that came to set things right. And he wants you to love him. He loves you immensely. And he is the fulfillment of all your heart's desires. Come and learn and do what he taught. And then after those instructions, people would be immersed, would be baptized into the death and resurrection of his life and attain new life, new hope for themselves. So if you're following along, I'm actually getting to the handout now. The general formula for like this personal charismatic proclamation might go as follows. And maybe you've encountered this before. I've kind of already outlined it. God loves you unconditionally and has created you for relationship with him. We all have broken that relationship with God by our own personal sin. Not just everyone else's sin. We all have a part to play in hurting this relationship with God. Jesus restores your relationship, my relationship with God through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus invites me, invites you to trust him, to turn from sin, and give our lives to him. Let him be the Lord of our life. And then finally, he doesn't abandon us. He pours out his Holy Spirit upon us and brings us to new life in his church. But it has a personal impact on our own lives. But as you could tell, St. Paul, he starts from the beginning. And he says, this message... What Jesus has come to do is not just for you. It's for the whole world, too. And so from a cosmic perspective, the kerygma is as follows. The age of fulfillment has dawned. The later days foretold by the prophets, where God would visit his people and set things right. This has taken place through the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the virtue of the resurrection... Jesus has been exalted at the right hand of God as the messianic head of the new Israel. One of my former pastors put it, there was a test of life. Jesus passed the test with an A plus when he was raised from the dead. That's how you know he can be trusted. The Holy Spirit in the church is a sign of Christ's presence present power and glory. So he continues his work through us, through the Holy Spirit abiding and working with us, us cooperating with the Holy Spirit. The end of all time, the Messianic age, will reach its consummation in the return of Christ, where there will be no more tears, and all will be made new. And then finally, this can be your life too. Death is not the end of the story. There's forgiveness of sins. 
the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit and eternal salvation. So those are the general layout of what the kerygma is. So it's actually pretty basic when you get to it. But what I'd like to do now is just kind of walk through what is this message? Where did it come from? Because we often hear the kerygma, it's immediately associated in Acts of the Apostles with the Apostles' teaching. But as our Lord said, no servant is greater than his master. And so they're all disciples of the Lord Jesus. And so it originates with Jesus. If you wanted to flip with me, you could. Uh, we're going to go to the Gospel of Mark. Sorry, I know some people grab Bibles. We're not going to be too many verses in Mark. Um, but if you want to just turn to the first chapter of Mark, we're going to start there. Because this is... One of the places where the message begins, but Mark's gospel is known as kind of the action gospel. There's lots of movement, lots of um, action. Jesus is traveling along the way. It's written as a journey. So St. Mark recounts Jesus' first words. The first thing he ever does in verse 14, he said, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time of fulfillment, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So when Jesus first arrives on the scene, he says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And for us, we can skip past a lot of things, but for his listeners, that would have meant a whole host of things. God was definitively going to restore Israel. Things were going to change. There would have been excitement when he's saying this. When you hear the word repent, what do you think of? When you hear the word repent, turn from. from. Okay. What are some of the connotations? You're spot on, Damon. Um, What are some of the connotations, though, maybe of repent, too? If we went down South Point and we went and asked a whole bunch of people, when you hear repent, what do you think of? What do you associate it with? Yes, right? Maybe there's even a finger pointing. I pointed because I was excited, but maybe you done screwed up. You better change your ways, right? Repent. And that's true. Uh, I've shared kind of the language or the etymology of the word repent uh, many times. Um, And one, I found it's a word that's not too common today because the world doesn't necessarily care about judgment. It avoids judgment. It avoids the idea of sin. So it's not actually in like the common lexicon. But if it is, it's because you done screwed up and you better change your ways. Maybe it's with a parent saying, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. <laughs> you better shape up. But as Damon said, to turn from. 
the actual Greek word is metanoia, which has this connotation of doing about face or a 180. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, his first words are, you're going that way. Hey, come follow me this way. And actually, Janice, I'm so glad you're wearing that T-shirt <laughs> or sweatshirt. So if you've ever watched the opening scene of The Chosen, it shows perfectly this concept of metanoia because the opening scene begins with a whole bunch of gray fish and they're all swimming in one direction. As it goes on, there comes to be one teal fish that's swimming in the opposite direction. It doesn't have any words just like singing during this time, but as you watch, you see these gray fish turn around, become teal fish and follow after. And by the end of the opening credits and the opening scene, you have a whole bunch of teal fish all swimming in the same direction. This is what Jesus is getting at. This is his message. Come, follow me. Repent. He's not finger wagging or finger pointing, saying, change your ways because I'm the author of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He looks lovingly on people and says, you're searching for good. You're missing the picture. Come, let me show you the true way to fulfillment. And that's at the heart of repent and believe in the gospel. And then, Jesus is only one man. He is God. So he could go everywhere. But because he loves us, he involves us in this mission of preaching repentance. So he gathers individuals around himself, and then he sends them out. So he calls the 12. So if you want to flip through Mark 6, we'll encounter one of those instances. And Jesus called to him the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, when you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. And if any place will not receive you, and they refuse to hear you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet for a testimony against them. So that they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oils many that were sick and healed them. What message were they sent forward with? Men should repent. So they're not coming up with their own words or their own message. Jesus is entrusting to them the message, and they are called to be faithful with that message. And we don't really like dive in deeply to these accounts, but Jesus, of course, was God, and he is a very he's all-knowing. But we can say he is so wise in the way that he weaves in the proclamation of the gospel. This message because he gives them the instruction to take nothing with them 
But then when they reach a place, what's he telling them to do? When you get there and they want to have that message heard, stay there and receive their hospitality. But if they don't want to hear it, leave that place. So what would they do if they went to some random town? Maybe let's say, because we're here in Nebraska, York, Nebraska. I'm from Seward. Our biggest rival is York. So, you know, you don't like people from, you don't like the ducks. Okay, so maybe we just say that the ducks are not going to receive the gospel message. If Father Clark and I went to preach in York and they didn't want to hear the message, what would happen to us? Would we be full? No, because we have no bread, we have no extra food. So we'd be hungry. Would, be, we, would we be clean kept and smell good? No, right? Because we have no extra clothes. Would we even have a roof over our head? Have anything? No, because we have no money. Woven into the proclamation of the gospel is a personal responsibility on the listener's part. So Jesus sends them out with nothing so that when the individuals encounter this message, they have to look inside their hearts and say, do I actually want to change the way that I am living? Am I willing to provide for the needs of the gospel? So that's part and parcel. The proclamation is always proposed. We can't impose it. We get in a lot of trouble when we try to impose the gospel. It distorts it, changes it. We go out and we propose the gospel. Letting the Holy Spirit do the work and letting our Lord change hearts and minds. So he involves the 12 in the work. And they continue to involve others in the work. And the message continues to be proclaimed. And then finally, it reaches its fulfillment at the ascension. So we're flipping along. If you wanted to find Luke 24, we're going to turn there next. Specifically, verse 44. And Jesus said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in that city until you are clothed with the power from on high. So again, what message is sent forward? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus says he's going to send them the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. 
And so if we actually go to Acts of the Apostles, we get into the true thick of the things where we pick up where many people associate the kerygma. And so Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and then Acts of the Apostles. And so it's kind of just like one continuum. It's a sequel book. And in Acts 1 and verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, the apostles, they asked Jesus, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he kind of gives them a roadmap of what's going to happen. They're going to start in Jerusalem proclaiming this message. Then they're going to go to their surrounding communities and then eventually to the whole world. And so then the fulfillment of what Jesus promised actually happens at Pentecost. So they're all gathered in the upper room. They're praying. And then the room shakes. and Tongues of fire depart on their heads. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they go forward. They go and preach. And that is in Acts 2. Paragraph 1989 of the Catechism says this. The first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion, affecting justification in accordance with Jesus' proclamation at the beginning of the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Moved by grace, man turns towards God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from on high. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and the renewal of the interior man. So that paragraph in the catechism perfectly encapsulates what we have just heard and what we're about to see. The Holy Spirit fills them. They're, in a sense, converted in a new way. And they're filled and are renewed to go out and proclaim this message with even greater power. Because up to this point after the resurrection, they're still figuring things out. In a sense, you could say that they're afraid. Things are changing. They're still not fully capable yet. But then God equips them with the Holy Spirit, and they go forward. And so then Peter goes out in Acts 2, and he gives the first kerygma speech. So the first time that this whole thing is laid out, in its entirety. And so along the handout, I think on the second or third page, you can kind of see how the cosmic formula is adopted from his speech in Acts. So the age of fulfillment has dawned, the later days foretold by the prophets. So then Peter stand up after being filled with the Holy Spirit, lifted his voice lifted up his voice and addressed the listeners, those gathered around that had heard the fire rushing of the Holy Spirit. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, 
Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, or nine o'clock. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Yes, on that day, and on my men servants and on my maiden servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you can see that direct appeal. The time has been fulfilled. What was spoken through the prophets is coming to take place. And if you're like, we kind of lost the context. They're all speaking in different languages. Everyone knows that they're from Galilee. They should only be speaking one language. But they hear them throughout all the languages of the world. The work of Babel has been undone by the Holy Spirit. And they're able to hear in their own language. And so Peter points, look, the prophet said this was going to happen. It's because something new has happened in the world. We're being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he points to that. This has taken place through the birth, life, ministry, and death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then we move on to, by the virtue of the resurrection, Jesus has been exalted at the right hand of God as messianic head of the new Israel. So then it picks up in 33 and 36 in Acts 2. This Jesus God raised up, and of this we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this which you see and hear. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So as we're reading, maybe we don't feel the import of that moment, but they had known what had taken place. They had heard of Jesus' great works and signs, and it was kind of a light bulb clicked on, and they're like, I see it. Which is then when we follow up in verse 37, and we see that this appeal for a new life and repentance, for the forgiveness of sins and renewal by the Holy Spirit and of salvation clicks with them. Because it says in 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise 
is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other words and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they held steadfastly to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. There's much more we could say about that early disciplines of the disciples. We'll cover that another night. But what I just want to draw out is what Jesus does creates a new community. And it has a definitive shape. They're faithful to the apostles' teaching. They're faithful to fellowship with one another. They're faithful to the breaking of the bread. Which, if we read that in tradition, is Luke's way of saying they're faithful to the Mass. And then they're faithful to having a life with God in prayer. And it bonds them together. That's the shape of the new community. And if we read on in Acts of the Apostles, that's what they are about. So Jesus was speaking to his fellow Jews. But you heard there in that last little segment that it's for them and for their children and for those who are far off. So it's not just for the Jews. It becomes a call and an offering for universal salvation for the entire entirety of the world. And we really pick this up when we follow Paul's accounts and the Acts of the Apostles. We heard the apostles were first going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, then Samaria, and then the end of the world. And this message that was proclaimed is adaptable and universal for all. Not adaptable in the sense we're changing it to every single person, but in the sense the proclamation could be made so that those of different cultures, of different backgrounds could be hearing. The heralds, in a sense, I should say, were adaptable. They became all for all people, so they might save some, St. Paul says. Because, again, woven into this, the gospel must be proposed, not imposed. So one point that I want to draw in about this universal message comes from the 17th chapter in Acts of the Apostles. So we'll flip there next. To set the scenes, Paul is waiting in Athens. We all know Athens, Greece, the capital of Greece, one of the great cities of the world. Paul's there. This Jewish man who's been converted, encountered the Lord Jesus, and now is a follower of the way. And he's walking around the city waiting for his companions. And he notices that they're very religious. But Paul, if you follow him, he's kind of a man of zeal. And he says, they're very misguided. They're very religious. I can see this by all the shrines that they have, but they're misguided. And so he begins to preach in the synagogue and then in the marketplace, out in the open, just among the Greeks. 
And the Athenians were known for their love of wisdom and knowledge said, we're kind of interested in what you have to say. So they bring them to the big public forum place. So our equivalent would be like Channel 8 News. We're going to give you the prime time spot, Paul. Share with us the gospel. Share with us your message that you have to have, you have to say. And so in the 17th chapter of Acts, this is what Paul says. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to men life and breath and everything. And he made every one, made from every one every nation of men to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitations, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel after him and find him. Yet he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we indeed, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, a representation by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul is this master evangelist. But what he does is he goes and takes a look around him. He looks at the culture with which he's living in, and he speaks to it. He doesn't go there and he says, you're all wrong, you're dumb, you're stupid. He says, I see you're religious. And I see that you had this altar to an unnamed God. Let me tell you about this unnamed God, who's the God of gods, the only God. And he teaches and he preaches to them in a way that they could understand. So this proclamation is universal and it's meant to be heard by the listener in their language. And so evangelization is just as much about reaching individuals where they're at and bringing them along the way. So the message, what is it? Repentance, turn and follow Jesus, whom God has appointed, who is the fulfillment of Israel. I have to say something. I think you're leaving out something. Okay. What happened to the sorrow? What happened to the reason that you went in a different direction? When you do repentance, don't you have to say more than, 
Um, let's see. I think I'll go in a different direction. Uh, uh, don't look back at my life. I don't look back at the way of being a pagan and say, I'm sorry for that. And that's the reason that I'm going to go this. Don't, don't, don't you miss something when you say you repent and just have that million? Mm, well, so we could expand upon that. And um, I don't think I'm leaving that out, Jim, um, partly because there's more to the story. You bring that along. Like we're talking about the initial proclamation of the gospel. So following up and actually where I want to leave us with is actually like my experience of conversion. Because I can tell you how I bring along the hurts of my past life of when I have um, been unfaithful to God. So for now, can we just stick to sure, the concept? And of course, there's a span upon. Because even as we said 20 minutes ago when we were talking about it, like there's the proclamation, which is simple. And then there's teaching and follow-up. And then one is baptized. So there's that follow-through of like, what do you do with this Christian life? What does it entail? You have to learn to know what the Lord said and what to do with this new life that has taken place within you. So I agree, there's, there's more to be said, but the apostles, as well as any evangelists, as well as us as catechists, fill in the gaps of what do we do with the sorrow for our sins? But I guess, in a, if I'm reading you right, what causes the being cut to the heart is a sorrow for sin. Let's not, well, I, let's I don't not, think you're repenting unless you have sorrow. Yeah, I would 100% agree. Yeah, so, but yeah, you do need that sorrow for sin. Um, Jesus cuts to the heart. He, he causes you to say, whoa, there is brokenness. So I just want to leave you with a little bit of my conversion story. Paragraph 2044 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, the fidelity of the baptized is a primordial condition for the proclamation of the gospel and for the church's mission in the world. In order that the message of salvation can show the power of its truth and radiance before men, it must be authenticated by the witness of the life of Christians. The witness of a Christian life and good works done in a supernatural spirit have great power to draw men to the faith and to God. Why well, I wanted to read that is because it speaks to the power of Steve's story. He lived a faithful Christian life. His funeral was arguably the largest event post-pandemic in Emporia. Not really, but it's not too much of a stretch. Like there was more people at that funeral, which is just a few months removed from Christmas, than attended Christmas Mass at Sacred Heart of Jesus. People were drawn by his life. They were drawn by the tragedy. They had sorrow in their heart. And that they knew something was different about Steve. His last night and his witness he gave brought people back to the faith. I know because we heard of numerous um, individuals that had heard the story recounted of his last 24 hours that had been grappling with great pain, doubting God, how could God do this, and then saw his witness, heard the message, 
and revisited just what God was about. And it also had an impact on me. So it was last year that this section from Luke's gospel uh, really came to the forefront in my mind. So in the church, maybe you've been here for daily masses before, or maybe a Sunday mass when we have like the communion antiphon. So instead of like opening hymns and octory hymns and communion hymns, we used to have like an antiphon, which is maybe a, sec- a section from scripture. Um, and then it most likely come from a psalm. And then you would intone that one line from the psalm and then chant the psalm with it. And it was like the first entrance hymn or first octory hymn. It's the truest forms of what those hymns are meant to be. So it was the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter, which is our feast day here, that the entrance antiphon for Mass that day, the Lord said to Simon Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So if we just collect that in the abstract, it's great. It's talking about Simon Peter and his mission. But as I went and looked where that's from, it follows immediately after the gospel passage that was read at Steve's funeral. And things were kind of brought full circle to, for me. So we have at the Last Supper, Jesus saying a dispute, or St. Luke saying, a dispute also arose among them, which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus says, for which is greater, one who sits at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have continued with me in my trials. As my father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint for you, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The verses that follow, Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, and he's speaking about all the apostles, that he might sift you like wheat. But then he, he looks at Simon and he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. So I haven't always been the disciple that I may seem to be of the Lord Jesus. I've, at times, some t- whenever we sin, we turn our back on him. But I, in a grievous way, turned my back on him when I was in high school. And I betrayed him before I truly came to know who he was. So I was raised a cradle Catholic. My parents were good Catholic parents. They volunteered as CCD teachers. I altar served for a lot. But looking back, I lived a vibrant faith life, but it's, there was a disconnect there. And also I think it speaks to the free will that I have to say, Maybe, Lord, I want to be the God of my own life. I've always been very rationally minded. And so as I began to study science and come to know more, as I let my friends and the culture around me influence me, eventually by the time I was graduated high school, I considered myself an atheist. 
And I lived that life for a few years. I can't say I was ever like a bad persecutor of Christians, but I definitely uh, did not. I said, that's great if you want to live that life. I can see why it's moral, but you're a bunch of crazy people. And it did leave me depressed. It left me broken. And uh, my freshman year of college, I really was struggling with the question, how do you live a happy life without finding any answer? So I don't know if you've heard stories about people's amazing conversions or if you've really taken to heart, like, who is Jesus? What has he done for me? Do I have a personal relationship with him? But I do offer that he's good at changing our life, sometimes faster, sometimes slower for all of us, but he's calling you. He's done a little bit of both for me because there was no profound moment where the Lord came crashing into my life and said, like Paul, why are you persecuting me? But it was through my brokenness that I began to search. So I went to college with a whole bunch of my high school friends. I slowly drifted away from them as they were going a different direction, go home on the weekends. And one thing that my parents did if you're at home, you got to go to Mass. And I continued to go kind of faithless for a while, but then just slowly after time, like I said, there's no direct moment. But by the witness of my parents and my family, my friends, and then my wife, who was among those group of friends that I came to know, and they're just faithful witness and love and care and their fidelity to the Lord, I began to reconsider my ways what was going on in my own heart to where eventually I made confession again. I had said, Lord, I'm sorry for what I have done. Please forgive me. And entered back into communion with the church. And then life just kind of continued until one summer I was prompted by the Holy Spirit at the University of Nebraska Kearney Newman Center to go and be uh, a totus tuus teacher, which if you don't know what totus tuus is, it's basically vacation Bible school. And I traveled around the state of Nebraska teaching uh, kids about our faith, getting them to see that life is good when you love Jesus Christ in this church. And I had no clue what that program entailed. Kelly did. So when I told her and I said, Kelly, I'm going to go do that. She's like, are you crazy? You're going to travel around. You're going to have like literally no money. And you're not going to be with me the whole summer? Like, what are you thinking about? But that summer changed my life. At first, I just kind of did the things that we did. We went to daily mass, prayed the rosary daily. And it was kind of not whole head into the motions. But eventually, as I continued, like the Lord continued to work in grace to where I just had this, desire to learn more, come to know the Lord more. 
And that's kind of been the journey that has led me to this point. There's been other instances um, where God has called me because realistically, probably shouldn't be here right now. I don't have a theology degree. I studied exercise science. I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach. Just like Paul when he says, I'm the chief of sinners, I've persecuted Christians. I've done that in my life. But God's call is so much greater, and he equips us for what he calls us to. And all I can do is try to be faithful. So the providence of conversion, the experience of loss of my friend, and the Lord's calling overwhelmed me in that moment when I put those two and two together. And it still overwhelms me now. So the last thing that I want to end with is what Jesus describes heaven's going to be like. So Jesus in Luke 22 says, here's what heaven's going to be like. I'm going to give you a nice chair, and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel, but don't worry that there will be food and drink. Is heaven like an eternal spelling bee? Right? Most people, when you think of judging things, maybe it's a 4-H competition, since we're here in Nebraska, it's a spelling bee. What's a judge do? At the heart, what's a judge do? Sees if you're good or not, yes. Uh, in a sense, what else do we have? That's true. Presides over the... A court. A court. Yes. And a case is brought forward and someone's demanding, give me justice. Whether that case is good or not. And so a judge comes to set things right. So this is what Jesus does. He entrusts these men. He commissions them to assist him in the work of setting things right in the world. On the back of your sheet, you have the curriculum graphic. God loves us. He loves you. Sin divides us from God. Jesus saves or Jesus restores. What are you going to do about it? God loves you. Sin divides. We can see the brokenness. This is where we can get to the sorrow. We've all experienced the sorrow of sin. But this life of fallenness doesn't have to be the actual way of the world. Because living in the new life, in the new hope of Jesus Christ, the world can be renewed. What are you going to do about it? So that's what I offer. If you want to have a sure and fulfilling life, Become acquainted with the Christ of God. And then, since we're here at St. Peter Catholic Church, in the way, I invite you to be open, not only to the Christ of God, but the Christ of God and his church, which I proclaim to you today is the Catholic Church, the one universal and holy church. I invite you to be open. I pray that the Holy Spirit 
allows you to be open, that you're open to this inspiration. One of my favorite lines in Scripture comes from the first letter of St. John, where he testifies that what was from the beginning, what we have seen and heard, we experienced the life that was at the beginning of the world. I've seen and I've touched him with my hands and I proclaim him to you so that you might have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with God the Father and of Jesus Christ. And John had individuals gathered around himself that he taught the Lord's words to. So I leave you with these quotes. This comes from Ignatius of Antioch, who was a disciple of John. So we're two degrees removed from Jesus Christ. Jesus taught John. John taught Ignatius. See that all of you follow the bishop even as Jesus Christ does the Father and the presbyters, as you would the apostles, reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of people also be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Whatsoever the bishop shall approve of, that it is also pleasing to God, so that everything is done may be secure and valid. This is just one segment that we see from the fathers, that when the church claims this line of tradition stemming from Jesus Christ, that we're living into this tradition two degrees removed from Jesus, and this is what one of the disciples is saying. Now, there's more from that point to this point that we will expound upon and cover in the coming weeks. But I just want to invite you to be open, open to the claims that we have going forward. We're going to cover the next three weeks from creation to new creation, walk through God's plan and story for the world, and then begin to see how the church arises from this great narrative that God is painting. Are there any questions before we close together with the, the Lord's Prayer? Words that Jesus taught us, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska on Apple iTunes or on Podbean and at our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.